Give us some insider information. How do you build those relationships? What are your secrets for like delighting and wowing your clients so that they say, I got a sponsor with David? It's not so much the wow, it's the genuineness, I think. I think you, you need to connect. And most importantly, I think you need to put yourself in their shoes. And in any sales role, it's what is that person thinking? And what does that person need to succeed in their role? What's their selfish interest to it? <laughs> and um, that's the number one thing from a WOW standpoint. That's David Chapulo speaking. David is the Vice President of Brand Sales, Intelligence, and Consulting for the global sports marketing firm Infront Sports. And I'm your host of this Level Up Your Leadership podcast, Lisa Kristen, where I have conversations with exceptional leaders like David to unpack how they created their success and to discover their recommended tools, tips, and strategies that inspire listeners like you to take your leadership to the next level. David is an exceptional salesman. What I like most about David is that he's the exact opposite of what you think of when you think salesman. He's not that too smooth talker that you feel a little bit unsure about trusting. And honestly, you never feel like he's being pushy or forcing an idea or product on you. He's just very natural. He's humble and he's funny. And I have to say this, I don't know if I'll like this, but he's very silly in the best possible ways. And that's really the reason that I invited David onto the podcast because there's actually a method to what he's doing. It's not an accident that David's career has taken off. He is a master at selling because he does one thing. He puts the customer first. And I know that that's everyone's advice in selling, but what makes David different is the way that he executes on that. So I found it really interesting when he said he actually writes a handwritten thank you note. First of all, who does that anymore? But he has a handwritten thank you note when he loses a pitch. So not when he wins and he's thanking a client, but when he doesn't get the pitch because he's slowly building relationships. That's what David does is he's all about the long-term relationships. And maybe it didn't work out that time, but maybe it will the next time. Or maybe that person leaves and goes to another firm, but remembers how David was with his good sportsmanship. And that's how David builds trust. And you know, trust is everything in sales. That's just one example of what David does. If you want to hear more tips about how to develop trust in sales, and in general, how to build long-term relationships that bring success, you're going to want to listen to the rest of this episode. So enjoy this podcast episode with David Chipullo. everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Level Up Your Leadership. I'm here today with David Chipullo. Welcome, David. Thank you, Lisa. Pleased to be here. Yeah. Well, we, we have had some fun times together outside of the podcast because we've known each other for I don't even know how many years now. And I've gotten to witness some fantastic Halloween costumes. <laughs> <laughs> I won't go into any details about nights out or um, vacations that you've taken with my husband to Las Vegas during March Madness. <laughs> stays there. Yeah, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But I will say, you know, our families, our friends, we've come to really enjoy each other because you have a, a really special personality. You're um, very fun to be around, very funny. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show today. You have this personality that people are just naturally drawn to. 
And I would love to get some insider tips and information about how do we how do we extract that charisma for ourselves. Sounds good. Are <laughs> you up for the challenge? Yeah, let's go. All right. So, Dave, you're in sports marketing, and I think a lot of people listening may or may not know what sports marketing actually is. Can you first just give us a background? What is sports marketing? I think the common first thought is always Jerry Maguire, <laughs> and uh, everybody goes to that and thinks everybody in sports marketing is an agent. And some are, and some are very good at it, but there are, there's a lot more. It's a um, $500 billion to $1.3 trillion industry. Wow. No one, uh, depending upon how you measure it. And that measurement can come from everything from the actual games and tickets and merchandise to TV and broadcast to security and transportation and seating at the venues um do you consider the hot dogs sold at a stadium part of that industry and so it goes everywhere including charities is a big part of it mm. so it really extends extremely wide and uh people looking to get into this career can kind of pick and choose it's not just narrowed to being an agent well that's really fascinating because i never really thought about the hot dog that i buy <laughs> at the baseball games that i go to <laughs> And how did you get into sports marketing? I guess really the question is, are you a sports fan? I mean, is that where it all started? Yes, I grew up my whole life. Everything was sports. Uh, my father was an athlete and a coach. And What sports? Uh, he played basketball, had tryouts at the professional level. Baseball had tryouts at the professional level. But um, you know, it's been part of our whole life growing up and then coaching high school basketball. So it's been a part of my every day from morning. I sound like the old man, but it was get up at sunrise, go out and play sports, trade baseball cards in the evening, play kick the can or release or these different games that are sort of active. And then until you get called back into the house at dinner or dark, <laughs> you're out playing sports or doing something revolved around sports. So my whole life uh, has been that through college. So then you were always a sports fan. Sports was really like a part of your life. So when you were a kid, did you say, oh, I want to be a professional athlete? Or did you say, oh, I want to sit at a computer all day? Well, I, w I wanted to just be part of it in some way. And as you're growing up, you obviously want to be an athlete. <laughs> and then due to my size or partially due to my size, I realized that wasn't happening. But then I looked at somebody like Bob Costas and wanted to be an announcer and Bob Costas, or I wanted to be a coach. But then as you develop um, through university and, and schooling, you learn that there are other skills and other opportunities in an industry. And uh, you find some of those opportunities. And I no longer wanted to be a broadcaster, but I saw other opportunities in business and grew from that. You also... Uh, as you're doing sports growing up, you learn your life lessons of they're the cliches, but it's teamwork and dedication and loyalty and all those uh, wonderful things that you learn through sport. And you also have experiences. Um, I grew up in white suburbia <laughs> uh, and, and played sports in that environment, but also it gives you the exposure to different races and cultures and opportunities. I went to a basketball camp as a nine-year-old and you sleep on the floor of the YMCA, and I was the only white kid in the entire, in the entire gym sleeping on the floor. And uh, you realize and you learn life lessons. 
I was given the token MVP. I definitely wasn't the best athlete there, but I think they saw the heart and the desire and the obstacles to overcome in that situation. And I got a life-size Dr. J cardboard cutout that stayed in my room for years. So. That sounds amazing. <laughs> that sounds like the dream uh, winning prize for a nine-year-old at basketball camp. <laughs> it was a beaut. <laughs> And so you had all these great experiences. You sort of learned about life, it sounds like. I mean, diversity, learning there are different people that do different things in different ways and look different from you. And you learned all these lessons. You said teamwork. We're probably going to come back to some of this because I'm sure that it influenced how you work in business, how, how you you know work with others and how you have gone across your career and moved up across the ladder. But I want to take a step back and just talk to you a little bit about your first jobs that you had because you were with a U.S. basketball team. Was Is basketball your first love? Basketball's always been my favorite. Yeah. yeah. So I saw that you were uh, working for the Washington Wizards, the U.S. basketball team, and you also worked at the U.S. Olympic Committee. So how did those shape where you wanted to go within sports marketing? Because you said there are so many different places you could go even within sports marketing. I um, graduated from college at James Madison and uh, fortunately we got an internship with the U.S. Olympic Committee. Hopped in my old Honda Civic and drove across to Colorado, Colorado Springs, and did a uh, three to four month internship, which was the perfect way to start because the Olympics and the USOC, it's very altruistic. Mm -hmm. And it is about the athletes. And we lived on the training center with the athletes. So we ate in their cafeteria, we hung out with them, we went out with them. And so it was really fun to be around, um, but it wasn't necessarily the NBA star, the NFL star. These were up and coming potential gold medalists. And you, and did, were you there with anyone that we would now know their name? Sure. Um, I think there were uh, a lot of the swimmers um, were Amy Van Dyken was probably the most famous. I think she's won five, six, seven gold medals. There were a lot of swimmers, a lot of wrestlers, a lot of gymnasts. So, I mean, most of them have won medals over the years. And this was back in 1997. And um, so it was just a great experience because it was so altruistic and natural to sports. So it was a great entry. Then you move over to the Washington Wizards and you get into big business and you see the difference. And there's value to both, but they're different. And the NBA, uh, you know, is a business and it's a big business. And there, there's quite a difference in different experiences, but it was a good way to get into the business to see both sides. And so you work both, you've seen both sides, you got a glimpse of the love of sport, and also the business of sport. <laughs> and how did that impact? Okay, so if they were internships, how did that impact where you chose to then work? I chose not to work. <laughs> <laughs> Even better. Tell me more. Well, I did the internships and I had trouble finding a job. And so I went back to the post-college life of waiting tables and bartending and doing odd jobs. I was building putting greens in people's backyards and sort of not a career, which was fine. And um, when I was about 27, I decided to go back to graduate school for sports management at George Washington University. And the first week I signed up and started classes and applied for a job at um, Clear Channel slash SFX Sports, which, are, which is a big major agency. And uh, they had posted the job on monster.com. And so they had 1,100 resumes, CVs that were put in there. Luckily, one of my professors worked there and uh, put mine on top. 
and I was definitely not the most qualified of the 1100, but got the position. And I had to decide whether I stayed in graduate school because I had a great job in sports. I ended up staying, but it was great to get the degree, but also to continue working uh, full time while I was in graduate school as well. But I have so many questions. I'm sorry to interrupt. First of all, I always say this. People don't believe me when they say I can't find a job or I can't move ahead in my career. And I'm like, build your network. You know, as a a coach, almost no matter what you're asking for. Well, that's not really true. But so many people as a a coach, I have to recommend to them, build your network because you don't always have to be the most qualified. It's not just you work hard with your head down and someone's going to notice. You have to know someone who can put your CV in front of the right person, for example. So I'm glad that you brought that up as a living example. They gave you a chance and you took that chance and you ran with it. You know, it wasn't that you were a bad hire and they took pity on you. You were a great hire. Uh, and it was all about the network. But two, I have to go way back to the story. I was looking for a natural break, but um, what did you learn working odd jobs until you were 27? And what was the pivot point where you said, I want to go back to school or I got to get some form of a career? (laughs) Um, There wasn't a pressure to go get a career. I mean, you make good money by attending and you live a nice life. But um, at some point I, I just said, okay, let's move on and and go uh, forward. And I said, school's a good buying of two years to go do that. So I could still have fun for two more years, but unfortunately I got a job in between and had to do both. So the fun part kind of ended and uh, I I did enter the real world at that point. I don't believe you for a second though, because (laughs) sports marketing, and from what I know about your lifestyle where you're traveling here and there, you're in China, you're in the US, you're in Brazil, you're attending sports events. It's like, oh, I gotta go to the US Open. Oh, darn, I'm quote unquote working, right? Did the fun really end? Well, no, it didn't end. It was still very fun and, and I'm working on things, but it, it, you still need the basic principles of business. You know, sports isn't any different than any other business. And yeah. you still need to learn how to sell, how to market, how to market yourself, how to market your products. And so the, the principles are still exactly the same. It's just in what I believe to be a more enjoyable and fun atmosphere. Well, let let me ask you, I'm just going to skip right ahead because I want to hear all of your secrets. As I mentioned in the beginning, you're very successful. You've built yourself a a great career. You're very charismatic. Everybody likes you. So what are the tips? You take the, you apply some business rules, but how do you, how do you create these relationships with the people that you're selling to? Over time. (laughs) I'd say the the biggest, um, mistake early on in your career. As I said, I didn't start till 27, 28, even to go back to school. But every, every there's still the pressure, particularly in the US, to jump into your career and get going. But it's completely different now. You don't retire at 65. Some people are working till they're 85, 90. So that's 60 years. And I didn't take the long haul approach when you're young, even though I took my time to get into the business. But then you still have even if I'm five years delayed, I might still have six, 55 years of working. So I didn't take the long approach. And if you look at it strictly from a sales perspective, all you need when you're selling things of higher value, which many sponsorships are, is one good contact a year. And that's good enough for having success in the industry. And if you take the long-term approach and say, I'm going to develop one relationship a year or two relationships a year, that in some industries is good enough. 
And uh, instead of always looking to the networking part, as you say, networking's critical and, and it's vital to it, but it doesn't have to be a thousand people at a time. It can be five or six people or two people or one person. If you go to a conference, I would much prefer to set up a dinner with five, six, seven, eight people than go to a 500 person happy hour because it's very top line and sometimes artificial, sometimes not, but it's very top line no matter what when you're at a happy hour. Whereas when you're at dinner with three, four, five, six, seven people, uh, it's much more meaningful. And that's all you need in most careers. So you're, you're saying network is not really about breadth. It's really about depth and really developing this long-term relationship and really going deep with a few key people. I think if you take the long-term approach, yes. And it also depends on the industry that you're in. In this industry, yes, I think depth is much more important than breadth. So how do you... Give us some insider information. How do you build those relationships? What are your secrets for like delighting and wowing your clients so that they say, I got a sponsor with David? It's not so much the wow. It's the genuineness, I think. I think you, you need to connect. And most importantly, I think you need to put yourself in their shoes. And in any sales role, it's what is that person thinking and what does that person need to succeed in their role? What's their selfish interest to it? <laughs> and um, that's the number one thing from a wow standpoint. And again, I am in sports, so there is a wow. If I take somebody to a sporting event, we have a common bond that lasts much deeper because it is an exciting and emotional experience. And I have that with that person forever. Whereas if I go to a conference, yeah, I might have a drink or a nice night out with somebody, but it isn't as deep and meaningful because you don't have that emotional connection. So I have that advantage, but so does everybody else in my industry. So I'm still competing in the same fishbowl. So how do you, how do you differentiate yourself? What, what's unique about David? Is there anything that you could share? I would say um, one thing that I've tried to practice or learn is to do things when you don't need things. And uh, I think it's important when you don't get a deal with somebody to send a note and to say, hey, thanks, that was a good process. Unfortunately, we didn't get to where we wanted to, but that was a nice process that we both hopefully learned something from. Or I, I tried to, and now it's still challenging from a time perspective, but every year, not at Christmas time, sending the Christmas card, I would do it in June or something and try to connect and go through and look at not the entire contact list, but as many people as I wanted to connect with and go find something relevant and send them. If it's an article about their business, if it's a lead for their sales, if it's something about their family, if it's something about their employees, compliment their employees. I think those are really important things to do when you don't have a need. And uh, I think that comes, comes back around over time. Again, if you're playing the long game of this, that will come back around. Doesn't mean you're going to get a sale that year or hit your numbers that year. But I think uh, if, if you help people and do it when they're not in need, I, everybody sends a congratulations when somebody gets a new job. It's more important when they're looking for a job to say, hey, hey can I help you? Yeah. So being proactive and meeting their needs and being present and taking an interest in their lives 
and being there at the times when everyone else isn't there and that they really could be grateful that you showed up. I think that's much more valuable than the congratulations when they get a job because they get a hundred more and now with LinkedIn, they might get 10,000 more. Yes. (laughs) And I liked the sportsmanship that you said, even if we lost the game, you're still gonna shake hands, right? You're still gonna send a note and say, thanks for the process. And that stands out, that good good conduct, I don't know what else to call it. (laughs) It stands out that people go, wow, he's a real sportsman. Yeah, it's really appreciated and it is the old school of send a handwritten note. (laughs) That's one of the things I absolutely do and I recommend to anybody coming up uh, a nice gift to one of your interns or or, um, junior staff is to get them monogrammed uh, paper or you know, to send thank yous. It's a nice encouragement. If they have it, they might do it. That's a great tip. If I had an intern, I would do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll apply. Yeah, I was just going to say, if anyone's listening and wants to be my intern. Uh, so tell me, you've worked all over the world because you were you are American. You started working in America, but then you came over across the pond and you landed in England. What was that like crossing cultures? That was exciting and fun. Um, I was working for a company called Team Services. I was in Chicago and uh, working on public-private partnerships, uh, which is outside of the sports realm a little bit. We were working for a governor that is now in prison (laughs) for selling President Obama's Senate seat in Illinois at the time, and we were doing public-private partnerships for them. So again, the principles of business go outside of sports and um, it was a fun and exciting thing but my wife and I wanted to do something more adventurous and go do something internationally and we spent 30 days just traveling throughout Europe and cold calling I ended up with 44 different um, meetings or interviews not all interviews for specific jobs but I'm saying I'm coming here and we traveled across Europe and set up 44 interviews and uh, had three job offers, very fortunate, and ended up with uh, selecting the one with Liverpool Football Club. And we picked up, my wife did it sight unseen, and showed up in Liverpool, England. And, uh, you know, and it, was, it was an exciting time, but it was different, quite different. <laughs> What's an example? Actually, I would love to know, um, if you're working for a football club in, in a British football club, you must have some crazy stories <laughs> about attending the games or seeing the games. There's got to be something there, I'm sure of it, David. Well, the fans in Liverpool are, I mean, they're crazy. And I'm saying that as a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I thought they, they were the most passionate fans in the world. But you show up in Liverpool and they live and die, the football club or Everton football club. But um, everybody in the city, it's constant. And um, it was really interesting because they were owned by two American owners, Tom Hicks and George Gillette at the time. And the fans were not big fans of the ownership group. Mm. They didn't think that they were true to the roots of the club. And there were protests and everything. So I came into this role and it's great because you're with a big football club. Everybody wants to talk about it. You get treated very well, but you also had to keep a very low profile because they thought that I was the nephew of the owner or somehow related to the ownership. And you're in this great city and this passionate city, and it was really 
exciting, but you also had to play a low profile or else it could get ugly. <laughs> so I can just imagine you and your wife like putting on a baseball cap and sunglasses just to go out grocery shopping. Like, I hope no one spots me. Did you pick up a British accent while you to try to, you know, pretend you weren't Americans? Well, I don't think a Scouser or a Liverpool accent is quite British. It's oh. quite different. <laughs> and uh, so fortunately, I did not pick up that accent. It's, it, it's a foreign language. <laughs> So, okay, so you were there, you, you made it across the pond, you had some interesting uh, experiences while you were there, you know, great time, but also a little nervous to go out in public. <laughs> um, and then what happened that you now landed in Switzerland? Well, I was hired there specifically at a naming rights for stadiums and arenas background. And I was hired uh, to build out the commercial or sponsorship structure around a new stadium that was supposed to be built. This was in uh, 2008, 9, 10. And uh, there was a shovel in the ground to start building a new stadium. But then the financial crisis hit and everything changed and that stadium never got built. So I had a wonderful experience. Uh, it was a great entree into global sports, into football, soccer. And it was a great door opener because at Liverpool, everybody wants to talk about football. Everybody wants to talk about the club. And so you're open and you're meeting everybody from agencies to brands to media rights holders. And um, so it's an incredible door opener at Liverpool. It was a wonderful experience, but the commercial structure around it wasn't built without a stadium. It wasn't developing. And I had done a partnership with my current company, Infront Sports and Media, while I was at Liverpool. And then some uh, discussion snowballed and I ended up in Switzerland. And so they stole you over a little bit. How, how did they woo you over? <laughs> or how did, what made you decide that working at Infront was going to be a good fit? Well, it was much more diverse in that you're dealing, as an agency, you're dealing with um, over 100 different properties and 25 different sports in football you're dealing with one and you live and breathe that. And there's great value to that. You drink the Kool-Aid or, you know, you American term, but you, um, you really live and breathe it and you get brainwashed into your own little world of football and that football club. And, and that's great. And there's a lot of value to that. But then the agency side, you get a much more diverse opportunity, both geographically and across different sports and different uh, business segments. And how would you say working internationally, do you work differently with different cultures? Is sports the same across all cultures? Is that like the common language there? Or do you have to tailor it when you're in Asia versus when you're in South America? Sports is a common language, which is great and allows us to speak that common language. We have a, actually a trailer video about why brands should get involved in sponsorship. And we open it with that it breaks religions and it breaks cultural boundaries and breaks genders and breaks every barrier there is. And it does. Sometimes it creates it as well, but uh, overall it breaks those barriers and it's a great situation to be in because you can do that. However, dealing with different cultures is, is particularly challenging. I mean, we're a company that has offices in 25 countries and learning to how to work with each of those different cultures is challenging and takes a lot of time. Are you uh, brave enough and willing enough to share a faux pas or a time that you did something culturally insensitive or you go, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. I noted that for next time. 
Will you save us the having to do it wrong ourselves? <laughs> well, don't ask my team <laughs> because that happens all the time, but hopefully we cover up many of those. Um, I don't think there's been anything that has been too damaging. Um, and you do get training, you know, when we had Chinese training on the, the proper, proper etiquette and the proper things to do. And I've read some of the books, I forget the exact title, but bow, kiss, handshake. Uh, oh yeah. Bow, shake, bow, kiss, sh- I think. Yeah. And, and it's a good book and a great introduction. Um, and it gives you a good overview. I don't think I made any major faux pas, but I'm sure on a regular basis, on an every meeting basis, I do something that is somewhat inappropriate for that culture. But uh, but that you know you're authentic. They go, ah, oh, that's just David. That's, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's just David being David. Yeah. And what's something you know? You said okay, you read these books and they were a great introduction. What's something that goes beyond? You know, we can all read a book or take a class, but then the reality hits. It's that theory versus reality. What are some real life intercultural lessons you've learned, whether it's China or anywhere? Yeah, and I think it's, uh, you can read, but you have to experience. I mean, even when I go back to the States now and you try and explain, you can explain it and there's an understanding, but not a comprehension. Mm. And um, this is, uh, it's an opportunity as well. Because if you are living it, and if you can't express that properly to whether it be brands or sports rights holders in different territories or different countries, if you can get that message across that you do understand and that they have some challenges, it's a real business opportunity. I'd say I see a great one with the U.S. in that, yes, there are a lot of different cultures and a lot of different areas of the U.S., but you're still only dealing with one to two languages you're only dealing with one set of media and broadcasters and so the marketing is much different people say it's much more advanced it's just different Uh, they do go deeper but what a lot of times american brands that we're working with they don't understand that in asia there's over 50 different languages well how do you market your brand to 50 different languages. They look at Europe and Asia as kind of one market, but it's not. And uh, the education of that and getting that point across is extremely challenging, but also valuable to those brands if you can show them how to do it. So once again, I, you know, I really hear this coming across. It's that you're showing value to your customers and being able to say, I'm doing everything I can to be in your shoes. And I'm not just doing a generalization. I'm not just saying, oh, yeah, I get it. Oh, you have a lot of languages. No, I feel the pain that's associated with it. And because I feel the pain and because I understand it and comprehend it, here are some solutions because I care and because I, I actually get what the real problem is. And sometimes it's an education in that they don't even feel the pain because they may not know. Now, of course, some of the the, the bigger brands, of course they do. They have specialists who understand. But a lot of brands don't just realize that there are 50 languages there. And how do you adapt to that? And what are the best ways to send your brand message across those 50 different languages and hundreds of countries across Asia. So um, it, it's not only putting yourself in their shoes, but also trying to educate without necessarily coming across as uh, ostentatious. Or <laughs> you don't want to be a condescending jerk. <laughs> exactly. <Why>? How weird. <laughs> it's not helpful in sales. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I, I'm super curious to know, how do you 
roundabout educate people? Is it just through a conversation? Is it just, uh, do you have any specific tactics that you use that you could share? Well, I think it's important for FaceTime. You can't get that message across in emails and you can't get them across even on phone calls. Um, I'm even a big believer in WhatsApp or Skype or FaceTime because it helps if you can't be in front of that person. Uh, I think seeing, seeing somebody face-to-face and seeing reactions is really, very, really valuable, both for your own staff, but also externally. And so I think getting FaceTime is critical. Uh, because they're not going to understand through a presentation. The brands that we are dealing with receive literally hundreds, if not thousands of proposals every month on what they can do in sports and entertainment. And you can't get that message across. You need to show them your one or two pieces of expertise that may separate you and get that message across. And uh, FaceTime's critical. So that's a great tip for how you develop business because you are often developing new business. Um, do you have any other stories about how you develop business or what's a good way? Like how you said, okay, we network, uh, I build one or two relationships. How do you develop new business? Is there a secret way of, of networking with the people you want to meet or, you know, how do you stand out? How do you, anything that you can share? I'd say that once you do develop into, a, let's say, a mid or a senior level role, you want to use the people that do trust you. And that's word of mouth and referrals is by far the best. Um, I'm hiring in the U.S. right now, and I put a job description out on LinkedIn. And I went to my two or three closest contacts who do trust me and said, hey, can you post this as well or reference this and say, great opportunity with a trusting person and company. And then that that spread like wildfire because then instead of just my network, now I have that three, four, five, six times. And and it's very helpful. So I'd say leaning on uh, whether it's business development or sales or hiring or whatever it may be, using your trusted network that you have built through the one-on-one or two-on-two opportunities is is the best way to go about that, particularly as you get more senior in your career. And what I'm noticing about what you're saying is that actually you asked for help. A lot of people feel like, oh, I'm at the top. I have to prove myself. I have to do all this stuff on my own. Is that one of your secrets to partnership and success that you're comfortable asking for some help? It's challenging (laughs) because you don't always do it too. Some of the traits that allow you to progress in your career also become detrimental as you get more senior and whether your ego or pride get in the way and it does for almost all at some point, it's, it's a balance and it's a check. And I recently had some of those checks. And uh, it's critical that you do have those checkpoints because it, it, it occurs. It absolutely occurs. So you, uh, you know, I do executive coaching and a lot of the coaching topics are around, basically, I love this uh, title from a book. It's what got you here won't get you there. So all the skills, all of the traits, all of the qualities that worked in the past in getting you exactly to where you needed to be in your career, it, it did work. It was great. It doesn't work here. Exactly. And, and that's why I specifically pointed out, that's why my ears picked up that you were asking for help because I know that's a particular challenge the higher up you get. But I appreciate that you have taken that step and be saying, okay, 
it's funny because I just have to add this one note. Um, this is just going into a speech that I was writing, so it's top of mind. If you ask someone for a small favor, they actually like you more. <laughs> yes. So it could also be a, you know, a great strategic tool for you to use as you're building your partnerships because they feel like they rationalize to themselves, I must really like that person if I just did them a favor. Exactly. And so they actually like you more. So if you're looking to build a relationship, one way could be asking for a small favor. Yes. And also <laughs> then they do come back to you sometimes. It's not a quid pro quo, especially if it's a deep, meaningful relationship. It's not a quid pro quo. But if you they feel comfortable asking you for a favor, then it just grows. Again, that relationship grows yeah. and grows. So, so you've just built a trusted relationship and a trusted environment that you guys can rely on each other. So let me go to the opposite of that. So when you're in negotiations, which many people think of negotiating as a conflict mode where you're arguing with someone else or you're trying to get something and the other person's trying to get something, do you have tips on how you handle negotiations? Negotiating is a is a tricky one. I uh, set up a conference internally for our entire sales staff several years ago with the Schraner Institute. And the guy was um, a former German police officer slash whatever the German FBI is. <laughs> and he would be come in, come in for crisis negotiations. Wow. And uh, now he does stuff for the UN and World Health Organization, and he comes in. And again, most of my colleagues on the sports side were saying, yeah, but this doesn't really relate to what I do. Well, it does. Again, those principles are exactly the same. Unique circumstances, but exactly the same. And he was really, really entertaining about hostage situations and everything else, and he re relating it back to our business. For me, as we talked about, the cultural is a big, big challenge on the negotiations because getting from A to B in, let's say, an American or a British mindset is different from an Indian or a Chinese mindset. One is not right. They're just different. And it makes it extremely challenging. And again, I think the, you fall back on the principles of putting yourself in the other person's shoes and what are they trying to achieve out of it? Um, there are some other tips, I think, in that the higher up in an organization you go, the fewer justifications you need. You need more storylines. You need a theme. You need a concept that a CEO or a CMO can go to the market with and say, this is what we represent and this is what we do. Whereas if you're dealing with um, a sponsorship director or somebody on a mid to senior level, they're looking to justify rationally and an ROI perspective on how to do that. And that's fair. That's Again, neither one is right. They're all doing their jobs. But you have to keep that in mind when you're talking to the people. The higher up, the fewer messages, but the stronger story. And the, the lower in the organization, the more rationalization, job justification, and ROI you need. Most people don't differentiate like that within the organization that, you know, the higher up they are, the more strategically that they're thinking or the way that they're thinking about how they can craft this message to their stakeholders. How do you go about building this brand story? Well, you have to have a story, even from the first one. Now, that story will change as you learn more about the different brands that you're dealing with. Um, but you have to go in. And one of my beliefs is you go in and shoot 
and you might miss the mark, but if you show creativity and thought, that gets you through the door to then craft that message. I'd say too many people nowadays come in and say, oh, it's a whiteboard, and they put the onus on the person that you're pitching to to come up with the story and come up with the solution. Yes, it is a whiteboard. You know that. They know that. But come in with a solution. Come up with a proposal. And again, most of the time you will miss the mark because you don't know exactly what that organization specifically wants and wants to achieve. But if you miss, you show the creativity and then they trust you a little more and you just um, dovetail into another story. So I like that because you're you're talking about being proactive and again, always giving to the client. So you're not just showing up and saying, all right, how can I help you? But you're saying, I've really thought about this. I've put care, I've put effort in. We're going to be creative about it. Um, I'm always curious behind the scenes, how, how many iterations does it take? <laughs> Even if you know it's going to be wrong, how many iterations do you guys go through before you'll pitch to a client? And I'm sure it varies a little bit, but... Yes, it's where you are in the process. I mean, on the first one, it, everything um, on, in sales in general, you, you're balancing the dedication of time to customization or tailoring a package. And that's probably the, one of the biggest challenges our entire sales force has is what is that balance? Is it a numbers game or is it really great ideas? And again, depending upon what you're offering or what you're pitching, it can vary. Sometimes it is a numbers game if you're just looking for brand awareness if you're looking for signing up people to buy something or just get acquiring names through a CRM and a database, then it has to be more strategic and more detailed. So that balance is really, really critical. And so the first time you give it a go, you show your thoughts, and there aren't too many iterations just because you don't have the time. But when you go back, you better be prepared. And those iterations may be two, three, four, five, six different iterations because you put different eyeballs on it. And again, you're going to miss the mark and you never know what the other side of the table will catch their eye. And I've learned that when you're going through a presentation, you think you have the best point that you're making. And then they pick up on one minor thing that you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, no, that's, that's our favorite meant. too. Yeah, that's, totally. I was planning that. <laughs> so sometimes clients see something and just say, love that. Let's go and run with that. I'd love to hear a story when a client is not so favorable if you can share, how do you deal with the difficult clients? So you go in, you go for a pitch, and you know it's going to miss the mark, but has there ever been a really difficult client or a story where it wasn't easy to handle? <laughs> I've never had a difficult client ever. They're all wonderful. <laughs> I love every single one of you. <laughs> no, um, of course, they're all, like I said, they're all different, and they may be different for objectives of what they want to achieve in their business, or they may be different, again, culturally getting from A to B. We have different scenarios where some brands are looking for brand awareness. We just recently activated for my parent company, Wanda, is a Chinese conglomerate, and they did a partnership with FIFA. And their goal was to bring their brand to the world and just create brand awareness. Whereas in another case, um, worked with Abbott Laboratories, uh, it's a pharmaceutical out of Chicago, and they were switching their brand. So they wanted brand awareness, but they were going from a B2B to a B2C uh, product offering. And their brand awareness was not just putting their name out there. They chose the world marathon majors, which are the six biggest marathons in the world. 
And that is not a TV product. That's not a huge visibility product. But they wanted to talk to a specific audience and educate them about what they were bringing to the market. And then they took the principles of marathons and the challenges in, of marathons and they brought it into their normal advertising and their traditional advertising. So sometimes you leverage the sports property to show and reach eyeballs. And then other times you're taking the, the principles of what that sport or what those athletes represent and bringing it to your general media advertising. So I think what I'm hearing you say is you have a such a great sort of empathy and understanding for each of your clients that even if they're acting difficult or having difficult demands, that you're able to shift and flex and to meet their needs. And so you don't necessarily see it as difficult. You just see it as they have a different perspective or objective or point of view, or they're a different culture or whatever, that they're just, it's just different. And we'll just flex to meet their needs in whatever way we can. Yes, the key is to make sure you understand what those needs are. And not always easy, doesn't always work, but uh, the, the focus is to learn their needs and bring those to life. And when you're focused on these clients, it sounds like you really almost get like, um, I don't know if this is the right word, but for me, it's like emotionally invested. You get to know their company, their brand, what they want, what they stand for. You're trying to really figure out in their shoes what's going on for them. Do, how do you deal with the disappointment when you don't win? Well, on sales, you get used to disappointment in most sales. Usually the success rate in sales for most industries is much lower than you uh, would want. And so you have to get used to the 99 phone calls, emails, discussions, and only having one decent discussion or traction. And so you get used to that. Now, doesn't make it complacency. It's almost the re reverse of sports in that if you're an elite athlete, you remember the losses. You remember the time that you didn't hit the winning shot or you came in second by one second or half a second. You remember those and those are devastating because you're used to success. In sales, I think it's the opposite. You're used to failure and the power of the successes you have is so exciting and so rewarding that uh, it's just shifts over and it's different and you have to live off of those successes again most industries some industries you have great success but in what we do it's 99 percent you're failing and the successes have great power and influence and reward that you have to live off of those I love this mindset where you're like, I'm not really focused on the failures. That's just, you know, average run of the mill, the name of the game. That's what's going to happen, right? It's almost, I think of like batting averages. It's not like <laughs> professional baseball players are batting a hundred, you know? So you just kind of say, okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to take a swing. I, we have to do all these sports metaphors. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to take a swing. I'm probably going to fail. That's all right. Because I really only need to be great at a few and those few will be amazing. Right. And, but you want to fail smartly every time. So you're failing 99 times. Again, it's the balance of time and effort and energy. But every time you do want to take away something or learning or even just knowledge of why they said no. And so it's important to take something away, even though you're failing quite often. <laughs> So failing smart, I like that. And what else do you think besides this mindset of, you know, being comfortable with failure, failing smartly, you know, maybe reflecting on what's going on? What other skills would you say someone would need to be successful in sales or in sports marketing? I'd say even beyond sports marketing, just in anything, I always uh, say that there's two main things, at least in my view, uh, and that's driving curiosity for any 
career, curiosity will win out. If you're curious, you'll find your own success. It's not financial all the time. It's not uh, holiday days. It's, it's whatever you make of it. If you're curious about any topic, I think the combination of curiosity and drive, and it, you'll have success in your career no matter what. And that's always whenever I talk to universities or talk to younger people in the industry, those are the two things. And, and it's hard because curiosity doesn't come naturally to everybody. But if you find things that you're curious about and dig deeper, curiosity will grow within you. I see curiosity as sort of a bit of an antidote to fear. So if you're afraid, you don't want to explore, you don't want to see what's out there, you don't want to know, you just want to stay safe. And so if you can be open and, and brave and curious and courageous and you're driven to really succeed, so what you're curious about, you're really learning, taking to heart, implementing, moving forward, I can see where that's really the key advice to, in any field to, to moving forward in your career. So fear works for inaction, not action. And, you know, I always tell my girls and young boy, you know, fears that you shouldn't have fear and, you know, fear's dangerous. But what I mean by fear works for inaction is when you're working with people and you put fear in them, all it does is make them go into a shell and not do more. So you can't put fear into your employees. It only works to give them bravery <laughs> and the ability to come out of their shell Fear is the, one of the worst things in, uh, in business. Absolutely. And it's funny, I, I sort of say a couple of things about fear to my girls as well. I, I, first of all, I tell my five-year-old she always has to call on her courage. So I said, even if you feel fear, that's okay. Call on your courage and let's move forward. But I make a distinction. There are two different kinds of fear. There's physical fear, which, you know, if you're going to jump off a cliff, you should be scared. <laughs> but then there's the psychological fear. And I think that's what you're talking about is the psychological fear, whether it's imposed by a boss or a management or a team member, or it's just by yourself, or I'm just afraid to fail, or I'm going to look stupid when I give this presentation, or I don't want to call because I don't want to get rejected. That's the fear that really holds you back from action. And it's certainly the opposite of curiosity and drive, which is what's going to get you to move forward in your career. The feeling of fear can be good and push you, but if you let it overtake you, it's bad. And as the wise Bruce Springsteen once said, fear is a dangerous thing in one of his songs. And it is. Yes. Well, you know, I, I have to say this to you because this is what U.S. Olympians use. They don't say, if you ask them before the Olympics, oh, are you nervous? Or say, I'm not nervous, I'm excited. So they take those fear signals in their body with this negative emotion and they reinterpret them in this new way where they're like, I'm not nervous, I'm excited. I'm not afraid, I'm motivated, right? So you can reframe a little bit of your fear and use it as a motivator. Let me ask you this. What, what would you say in summary is your number one piece of advice for listeners for how they can level up their leadership? Smile. <laughs> I do that. See, right, that's good. Right, You're, doing it. It. <laughs> You're doing it. You're doing it. It helps Dash. you and it helps the people around you. And, and I, I mean, it's a simple thing. <laughs> but I actually, even before presentations or going into something, um, you know, I'll put on a song that makes me smile or I'll think of something that makes me smile because it does change you. You know, it's proven the endorphins go to your head and it changes you. So Absolutely. smile. It's pretty simple. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And, and, you know, it also, in terms of you talking about building relationships, smiling also creates a bit of a connection. 
So that's a nice one. I'm going to walk around smiling all day. People might be like, why is she grinning like an idiot? But I'm going to say, I'm taking David's advice. <laughs> you do anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm a natural smiler. People who listen to the podcast regularly always hear me laughing while, while my guests are talking. It's probably overpowering. So let me, like, we've talked about so many different topics that I really feel like I've picked your brain. Is there anything that I haven't asked you, though, that you'd like to share with listeners? I have too many. <laughs> now, again, if I, if I talk to a class, I bring, uh, I have a last slide of just things that, whether it's life or career or whatever, and they're, they're simple, but I'll share a few. Uh, Please. Well, and you, you can edit it out if you don't like them. No, 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 <laughs> never. Uh, when you travel, bring a safety pin. <laughs> Always have a safety pin on you. Put a pair of scissors next to your kitchen sink. You use them all the time. WD-40 and superglue are your friends. Um, <laughs> I'm loving these tips. These work in so many scenarios. Uh, take time to do basic skills that you know you're going to do through the rest of your life. And, and those aren't necessarily what you would think. Go watch a YouTube video on how to search the internet. You do it every time, every day, probably five to ten times a day. Take a half an hour to figure out how to do it efficiently. That's going to save you a ton of time. Oh, I just, I have to give you a side note. I just taught someone when they're searching, they could do a minus sign. Uh -huh. And then See? they get, yeah, and they were like, <laughs> and they're, you know, they're a millennial. I mean, it's not like, you know, someone who didn't grow up with the internet. And I said, so now I'm going to say, you know, take the 30 minutes. It would save you how many years over of your, your life? your life. It's amazing. <laughs> I don't do all of these, but, I, you know, learn to speed read. That's valuable. I haven't. I can't call myself a speed reader, but I know how to skim well. <laughs> it's easy. Go look online. Tim Ferriss has a class on it. Um, learn how to travel cheaply. <laughs> You're going to travel in life. Learn how to do it efficiently and cheaply. Learn how to take pictures. Don't always take pictures from so far away. And I know one of your pet peeves, don't send somebody a thousand pictures. Send them the ones that are relevant to them, that, that look nice. Don't make them go through all of them. I hope my mother-in-law is listening. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Low blow. Um, don't select a career that you're passionate about. Select a career that allows you to do your passions. So if you want free time, if you love golf, you don't have to have a career in golf, but do a career that allows you to golf or travel or cook or whatever it is. Read, 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 or nowadays, listen, listen, listen to Lisa's podcast. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, that is um, what I tell everybody in the industry. By the time, after three or four years in the industry, I felt like I knew everybody in the industry, even if they didn't know me, which they didn't. <laughs> I felt like I knew everybody because I saw all their quotes. I saw all the stories about them. I think reading is critical. Um, and there's... Plenty more, but I'll stop there. <laughs> well, I, these are all great pieces of advice. And I want to add one last thing about reading, which is so many people are looking today uh, for this edge, this performance edge. How am I better that, you know, or how do I steer clear as the machines are coming and artificial intelligence comes and creativity and innovation are tops on everyone's list. What are the skills of the future? What do I need to succeed in my job? 
And people are very surprised when I say innovation and creativity and new ideas, they come from having this background from lots of different places. And reading is the fastest, cheapest, easiest way to have a ton of various experiences, which you can then later connect together to come up with this quote unquote innovation. But you have to have seen, you know, travel is a great one to do as well. When you experience something new, your brain can connect it back to something old that's been there. So maybe you, you know, go to uh, travel somewhere or you've read this new book and now you say, hmm, how does that change the way I've been doing my job now? And you can bring innovation in simply through new experiences, new ideas. I'll add one more then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's uh, why Michael Jordan was so great is every offseason he picked up one new specialty, whether it was a turnaround jump shot, the next year it was a three-point shot, the next year it was a defensive strategy. Well, same thing, again, if you're playing the, the long play of your career of whether it's 30 years or 60 years or 80 years, pick up something new every year, learn something new, kind of make it, uh, you know, a goal of yours each year to pick up one more skill set that just adds to your repertoire. And then who knows where your career goes. And I love that. And it ties back to something you said earlier, which is you're in it for the long haul, long haul, have some patience. You don't need every skill now or tomorrow. Pick one skill, learn it, do it right. (laughs) And then pick up a new skill, learn it, do it right. Because over the long haul, you're not burnt out. You actually know how to do the things. And you've acquired this massive skill set. And it's easy and can be fun. Amazing. Thanks so much, David, for joining me here today. Thank you, Lisa. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to another episode of Level Up Your Leadership. If you're interested in learning more about today's guests and the topics we've discussed, Check out the show notes on www.lisacristin.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes to subscribe. While you're there, it'd be great if you could rate and review the show. And if you really like the show, I would appreciate it if you shared the word on social media. As always, thanks again for listening. Listening.